Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I am your host, Katie Morton, if you don't know who I am, I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, and I have been online for a long time, you guys. It has been 10 years, which is crazy, but I uh, always answer all of your mental health questions over here on Ask Katie Anything, so if you're new, I'd like to welcome you to the community. Um, For any of you who aren't aware, my online community has always been something that I have taken a lot of time and effort and put into it so that it is a safe, healthy, happy place. I hold all comments who that say anything that could be hurtful or damaging as much as I possibly can, right? It, nothing's perfect. But I've always done my best to make sure that I've cultivated a healthy, supportive, and loving community. And all of you are, you know, responsible for that now. And you've done such a wonderful job keeping it up. And I've never been more proud of something in my, enti- my entire life. And I love to see your comments with each other, supporting, offering insights and all that good stuff. And today's podcast is no different. I have a ton of questions and comments on the end of each question today. And we are going to get through, we really have eight serious questions. The final question is about uh, my new dog because Sean and I just got a puppy. She's three and a half months old. Her name is Roxy and she's adorable and she is taking a nap right now. So pray for us. She's really quiet. She doesn't really bark or whine much, but you know, I just feel bad putting her in her crate, but I've got to because you've got to work. So enough about me. Let's get into those questions. Now, question number one says, hi, Katie, can you give your therapist a quote unquote summary of me document so you don't have to waste so many sessions getting through your whole life story or make your own trauma timeline to give to your new therapist instead of doing it in session? Would it be weird to write down my story in a letter or word document or PowerPoint? Would it be weird? Oh, wait, no, sorry. It would have an overview of my trauma, personality, things I'm struggling with, anxieties, and anything else I think that that they should know. Have any of your patients done something like this to you? The truth about this, first of all, I love this question. And I love they're even considering doing it because it is really, really helpful. And like one of the comments had said below this, I've been saying forever how therapists can't read our minds, you know, I mean, it'd be wonderful if they could, but they can't. And so the more information we share with them and the more we tell them about ourselves and what's going on, the better able they will be to help us. And so I have not personally had a patient do this without being prompted. I have prompted a ton of my patients to do this, but I haven't had anybody do it like preemptively and come in with it, but I would welcome it and be shocked and, and, and excited because it'd be so, so helpful. Um, And so I really think that, yes, you can. I think letting them know, hey, I just don't want to waste a whole bunch of sessions going through my whole life story. Um, Here's my PowerPoint or here's my letter. Here's, you know, whatever you want to send them or bring in with you, I think is super helpful. And I, I would, you know, and I don't see any reason why not. Because like I said, a therapist can't read our minds. And once they kind of have a better understanding of what you're dealing with, then, you know, we can kind of like cut to the chase, meaning cut to creating our goals for therapy and our treatment plan and working toward those goals instead of spending all this time, you know, going through everything little by little. Although I I do want to tell you that they're going to ask you to tell them about certain things. They're going to have questions about the document you give them or PowerPoint presentation that you share, they're going to have questions about it because, you know, we can't know exactly everything that our therapist is going to need to know. 
And that's where we meet them halfway, right? We've worked and put together this thing so they know, and then they ask more questions. So if there are things that they're needing, you know, more information or fill in, you know, this little bit of detail or have you tried this before, you know, stuff like that. I think that would be wonderful. Now there were comments on this. Somebody said, I'm also wondering what kinds of information would be useful to put in that document? if it's acceptable to make one, totally acceptable. Would a therapist want to know about the visions that I saw while on psychedelic drugs? Would they care about what ethical frameworks I think are legitimate? So this is a good question. And the truth is what's useful to put into it are, it's honestly kind of like our intake paperwork. Not every therapist has a, a lot of intake paperwork they require. I don't have a ton mainly because nobody likes filling out forms and I kind of do more of it in my office with my patient. But things that I ask and things that are helpful to just bring in are any medications we're on, what other therapy we've done in the past, if any, and what are our symptoms? And then if we have any history of like trauma that we feel okay sharing, I know like we might not be there yet, but if we have any history of traumas or difficulties in school growing up or anything that we think would be pertinent. For instance, I'll give you an example of like what I would personally share. First of all, I would share my family as an like a rough outline of like, well, I have an older brother, mom and dad. My dad died when I was 24. Um, I've been in and out of therapy since I was 15. I've seen over my years, one, two, three, four, five therapists five therapists, maybe six, five. I'd have to really think about it. Um, things I struggle with most are people-pleasing behaviors. I've worked on that a lot. It's gotten a lot better. So I over-apologize. I definitely struggle with anxiety off and on. I did have a depressive episode when I was about 15. Those would be things that I would share, things that I would put in there. Now, if I also had a history of trauma or addiction, I would put those things in as well, or certain things that I've, uh, like, I would even honestly, in my own kind of thing that I would put in there, I would say, yeah, I've worked with therapists who've done less structured therapy and it just doesn't work for me. I prefer more structured, more homework, more follow-up. I like to know I'm moving towards my goals. That's just how I am. Those would be some things that I would share. I don't necessarily think that it's important that they know about visions that you had while on psychedelic drugs, but if you feel like that is something that you're currently still processing or trying to make sense of, or it's the way that you've moved your life forward from that point, then then it becomes, you know, something important. And then you could share it. It's all about what's important to you and what you want your therapist to know about you. You might want your therapist to know that you do have a history of using psychedelic drugs. That's actually pretty helpful. Um, or if you, you know, are in one of those trials where they're using psilocybin to treat people with PTSD, that'd be something that would be helpful for them to know. And then what um, would they care about what ethical frameworks I think are legitimate? It's not so much about what you would think is legitimate, but in essence, what you think is legitimate, I assume is what you believe would work for you. And that is helpful because if I had a patient come in where they're like, I don't do homework, I hate journaling, and I've tried... I don't know, EMDR and it didn't work for me. That's all helpful because then I, when when I dig into my toolbox and my ideas for my patients, I'm going to leave out the ones that are journal-based and I'm going to know, even if we're working in trauma, that EMDR is off limits. And those things may be revisited another time where I'm like, I want to challenge you to give this a go. But for the most part, if we don't have to, and I don't think it's necessary, we won't do those things. And so that would be helpful. Now, there's another comment on this. It says, also, if you told your therapist about your abuse, but didn't mention any details because it was too upsetting for you, can you write all of the details on a piece of paper and give it to your therapist? 100%. It says, if, ye if yes, would it be a good idea to ask her to talk to me about them and ask questions? Or does not being able to bring up the details myself indicate that I'm just not ready for talking about it in a non-superficial way? 
This is a great question. And I, it's very common for us to not be able to say it out loud. For some reason, I don't know what it is about emotionally heavy items in our life. Putting those words together and saying them out loud can be oh, like so painful, it's so difficult. And, and even putting language to it can be really hard. And that's a lot of the work that we do when it comes to trauma therapy and just work in therapy in general. I think uh, in my first book that it came out last, uh, it was December of 2018 called Are You Okay? I talk about how one of the biggest benefits to therapy and one of the re ways to know you're seeing a good therapist is they allow you or not allow you, I guess they work with you to come up with language to give to what you're going through. Meaning that before therapy, you don't have to know how to talk about it. You don't have to know what to say, but through therapy, you'll learn that maybe that experience that I have is hypervigilance. And maybe what happened to me wasn't just a bad time. It was actually abuse. And I'm okay saying that it was abuse. Putting words to it can be validating. It can be difficult. And therapy is supposed to help along the way. So it's completely okay if you're not able to talk about it, to put it into writing and give it to your therapist. That's just where you're at. The fact that you even want to do this means that you're ready for it. It just means that to the talking about it's going to be tricky. And I think all of us out there in trauma treatment would say, yeah, the talking about it is always the tricky part. So that does not mean that you aren't ready. That just means we have to get a little creative, right? We have to write things down. We have to maybe send in emails in between sessions if they allow that. Or, you know, maybe it's just a journal we keep that we hand over to them or they copy so they can have that information, whatever. However we can get it out, do it. And I do believe that that means that you are ready you're just going to need a little more support and that's okay. That's what we're in therapy for, right? And then it says the next question, Hey Katie, how do you know what to add into a trauma timeline? If any of you don't know, a trauma timeline is when we work with a therapist to, if we have multiple traumas in our life, which I know a lot of us do, we, tr we work together to put them onto a timeline so we can kind of make sense of when and where things happened in our life. Because if anybody out there has been traumatized multiple times, there's like, chunks of our life that can feel all swirly twirly like we're not sure when one thing happened but this happened before or after that and talking it through and putting it on a timeline just helps make more sense of it and it works toward that goal of being able to put our our trauma into a narrative so that we can repeat that story to ourselves and to our therapist until it doesn't have such an emotional charge meaning it's not so overwhelming to talk about. And so we work to do that. And the trauma timeline is just kind of part of that. And I hope that makes sense. If you want more information, I'm happy to talk about it. I talk about it in my new book, Traumatize. It's available for, it's actually, it'll be out by the time you hear this podcast. My baby will be out into the world. So you can order yours now. And the link is in the description of this podcast and honestly all across my socials on social media. Okay. So that is what the trauma timeline is. And what you want to add is truthfully, and I don't want to say any because it can get kind of, I don't want to be too busy, but anything that seems like a big deal. I always start my patients off by saying, what's one of the first memories you have, if they have any, but it might be, let's say we're eight. Let's say we don't have any memories up until that point. That's okay. If we have a traumatic background, that's kind of normal, right? Okay. What is it about eight years old? What do you remember? Well, I remember this one fourth of July at my grandma's house. Okay. So we write that down as a marker. Okay. Well then do you remember, you know, going to school? Are there any memories about school? Are there any memories, you know, and then we try to, I work towards slowly anything, you know, when's the last time you saw your mom? Or do you remember when your brother was born? Or I try to pick out 
you know, kind of bigger deals for kids. It's usually just transitioning to schools and starting a sports team or making a good friend or something like that. Or maybe it's more traumatic than that. Maybe the things we dig right in, it's like the first time we remember being abused or bullied or any kind of trauma, right? We can try to find that out. But usually I go from things that aren't as emotionally charged to try to get a framework and then fill in in between with the traumas as as I know them to have happened. And then I will often... Um, put a trauma on a timeline with a patient and say, does that sound about right for that? Or do you think it's after this point? Because now we have these markers, right? Was it before we went to middle school? Or was it after? Because I think it's before by a couple of years. Or was it after you got your first dog? I think it's after that, you know, and that can help us kind of figure out where things are. So any, any major event in your life that you feel would help with that timeline, help us piece together when things were happening, like what and when, I guess. But don't get too caught up in adding everything. It's more it's more like we have these mile marker posts along the way, and then we kind of fill them in as we feel able with the traumas that we remember or the traumas we have been told have happened to us. Um, and then this says, like, what about events like getting bullied in school for a year or hearing the first time that someone died in your social environment? Like my mom's best friend died from cancer and we were friends with the family. Yes, all of those go on the trauma timeline, the getting bullied and, and hearing for the first time that someone died that you knew. And what do you do if you can't put everything in order as you don't remember when or for how long something happened? That's okay. That's what therapy is for, right? We start a trauma timeline isn't something that we only work on once and then we're done. It's something that we build and build on and move things around. I always tell my patients they're like living documents, meaning it's not hard and fast. As we as new things reveal themselves to us or as we make sense of maybe a trauma memory that we don't have full recollection of but we know in our body what happened, we can slowly learn about that and try to piece together maybe when it happened. It doesn't have to be 100% accurate. It's just supposed to help us make some sense of what took place. So if you don't remember everything and you want to move things around later, that's okay. That's part of the process. Don't worry. Um, So what about something that's probably repressed memory? I recently had a thought which I believe could be some sort of blurred memory. It was drifting away in my thoughts when I was around some friends and suddenly a picture came to mind. I was little and I was in a situation where I shouted for help. My mom was in it as well, but I don't know what kind of role she had. Maybe I cried for her to help. Maybe she was the reason I cried for help. Maybe I was playing a game where I pretended to seek help. I recently realized she abused me repeatedly two years ago, but I remember most of that. And I have a feeling that I was a lot younger in this weird blur of a memory. So I don't know if it's connected somehow. Do you think that's a repressed memory or should my, or just my mind fantasizing about something? I think that's a repressed memory. The fact that it's like flashes and we don't really have all the detail, that's very common when it comes to a trauma memory. Now, it could potentially be something that your mind is making sense of because of the more current abuse. But again, I would tell your therapist about this and you said you feel like you're younger. I would encourage you just to try to plop it on the timeline where it seems somewhat appropriate. Again, this doesn't have to be 100% accurate. It's more so that we can try to make sense of what we think has happened. And that means later, if we're like, oh no, that happened later. I thought I was like four or five. I think I was like eight, we move it. Or if we're like, no, I think I'm confusing that with this other trauma, then we put it together with that. There's it, you're not, there's no like, Once we put it on there, it has to stay. Again, this is a living, breathing document that will change as we learn more about our process and about our trauma, when things happened, what happened. But I 
just based on what you told me, I believe that this is a repressed memory. That would be my hypothesis. I would obviously test that if you were my patient. I would ask you a bunch of questions about it and kind of see how much you're able to dig in. You might not be able to, and that's okay too. Sometimes when trauma memories are broken up like that, that's all the memories that we have because, you know, dissociation, which is a part of trauma, can make it hard for us to remember things and hard to create memories. So they might not even really be there. But even just the trauma of it can make them feel scattered and like flashes, like not not a cohesive story, right? So tell your therapist about that and bring that up because I really believe that there's something there. And then they finish up by saying, I struggle with some violent intrusive thoughts, but they are way more specific, not like this one. So it's different, right? Again, I think it's a trauma. It's a repressed trauma memory. Can repressed memories also be about something not traumatic? Like I wrote a game for, um, like as I wrote a game, for example, is it weird to ask your therapist to do trauma timelines in session or would you advise me to? I think it's better to do them in session. I believe trying to come up with that on our own is just too triggering. Unless you have a ton of coping skills and feel super resilient, like you can just handle it, go for it. There's there's no like hard and fast rule, like never do it or always do it in session. I just think session is safer. We can go slower. A therapist can ask follow-up questions to ensure that you know we're considering where it could be placed and what possibly happened and you know thinking through and trying to move things around as needed I think it's better and then they can make sure we're not dissociating or going too fast or doing too much they can work to keep us grounded I really just think it's safer in therapy but again if you feel gung-ho and you have tons of resilience and you're like I can do this you can do it on your own there's nothing to say you couldn't and um repressed memories are usually not about something non-traumatic because Things that aren't traumatic aren't what we would call repressed. Instead, they're just unaccessed memories, which I know you're thinking, well, Katie, what's the difference? The difference is when we're repressed memories, we, our brain actually like somewhat consciously, we believe it's in, I talk about this in my book, my new book. I, um, there's a whole chapter just about trauma memories and how they're different but our brain consciously pushes them away almost the same way our brain pulls the ripcord and like we go into dissociation it does this repression in the same way where it's like this is too intense i'm going to push this down and hide this away so that i can survive so it's really adaptive it's really a survival mechanism and that's why trauma memories are over like memories of overwhelm as i like to call them because i know sometimes we're like was that trauma it doesn't really matter if our system was overwhelmed and we were super stressed out we can repress that right we can dissociate it can be stuffed down we can pull the rip we can protect ourselves so we can go forward when we don't remember something non-traumatic like i don't know a picnic i had with a friend or something it's more because i haven't accessed it recently and we all know the more we access them the more easily and more readily available those memories are and so if we spend some time you know going down memory lane with friends and family the next day most of those memories will be more clear in our brain and we'll be thinking about them more because we just access them whereas if we haven't accessed them in a long time and we just start going down memory lane with people we can be like oh yeah i totally forgot about that right and if someone hadn't mentioned it we would not have remembered that doesn't mean it's repressed that just means it's kind of you know out in the distance it's not really an important uh, daily usable memory get a little hit of coffee here let's move on to question number two See how many comment questions there are on these? We'll try to get through these as quickly as possible. 
says, how much thinking about therapy is too much? I find myself constantly analyzing myself and thinking about things that I need to work on, things I need to talk about in therapy, etc. I The second I walk out of my session, I'm already thinking about the next session. I even find myself talking to myself when I'm alone as if I'm in th- a therapy session. Does this sound like an unhealthy attachment to therapy? Do you have any tips for breaking this cycle? And so many things, like so many comments on this, like, yes, I do this all the time. So I'm going to get through this first portion first, and then we'll we'll move through the, the questions and comments. So thinking about therapy this much leads me to believe that you probably need more therapy. And the reason for that is we almost don't have time in our, our schedule or in our brain to think about something else. And so I don't necessarily think that it is unhealthy attachment to therapy. I think you just have more to talk about. You're like overflowing with stuff that needs to be processed or, or considered in therapy and the analyzing. And so, okay, so that's one, there's, a, I have quite a few thoughts about this. Number one hypothesis that maybe we need more time in therapy. So if you find yourself feeling like you barely get through what you need to in your sessions and then you leave already thinking like, oh shit, I forgot to bring up this and next time I want to bring up that and you know, we're piecing together our next session like already, like you said, and like you just left. And that's why that means we need more sessions because we just don't have enough time. 50 minutes or however long our sessions, it's just not enough. We need a little bit more time. Or another thing, If we find ourselves like ruminating in general, like let's say pre-therapy, before we're in therapy, do we find it hard to not uh, think things through over and over and over and over and over and almost obsess slash overthink our life decisions? Like do we lay in bed at night and have a lot of worry thoughts? If the answer is yes, then I think that this is more an anxiety-driven behavior, okay? Those are my two hypotheses that it's either, you know, we need more time, we need more therapy, and just more time in session because we don't have enough, or it's more of an anxiety-driven response. And as our anxiety builds, we think about things more. And since therapy can kind of, in some ways, trigger anxiety a little bit, right? If we start digging into things, it can bring up old memories and it can uh, make us start thinking about things in a different way and, you know, lead us to worry more, possibly at first, but until we have some tools. Yeah. Anyway, those are my two hypotheses. And so what I recommend is actually to tell your therapist about it and be curious to figure out which of those hypotheses or a whole nother reason of why this is happening. Because there's a reason behind it. Do we think it's anxiety driven? Do we do this in other parts of our life? Or do we think that maybe we just don't have enough time in therapy to talk about all we need to talk about? And so we just immediately start putting the list together again. Like, which is it? Or is there something else entirely happening? talk about it because once we know why it's happening then the way to make it stop is either a to book another session each week or maybe b to have some ways to calm our nervous system that don't have to do with rumination meaning can we distract can we try full body shakes can we uh go pet an animal those are soothing they're soothing to your system fyi um can we call a good friend can we, you know, what are, what are the things that we can do to help ourselves better be soothed? Does what we would call, uh, for those who are autistic, we know this very well, but stemming behavior, like rocking yourself. I know that sounds silly, but sometimes that can be soothing to our system. But we know ways that our, our system gets soothed is through connection with others, through physical movement, 
through taking action where we can. I mean, if we just find ourselves spinning with things, what can I do right now? Because right now you're thinking, oh, I'm just going to think about this and make this list and practice what I'm going to say in therapy. No, are there other things that we can do? Like, can I, um, maybe the action that I take is trying to figure out why I'm doing this. Or maybe the action I take is to clean my house, distraction. Maybe the action that I take is to go for a walk. I mean, you guys get what I'm, where I'm going with this. We're gonna, in order to break the cycle, we have to figure out the why first. Like, why is this happening? Because then we can use some tools or techniques or other things in order to get the needs met without doing this rumination. Does that make sense? I hope so. And I, it doesn't sound like an unhealthy, unhealthy attachment to therapy. That would be more like wanting to see your therapist all the time and wanting to text and call them all the time. I'm feeling that like, if you couldn't get to therapy, like your therapist went on vacation, you'd like, you'd feel completely dysregulated, meaning like, oh, super, super emotional, essentially overreacting emotionally. And I don't say overreaction as a way to, to judge that. I'm just saying based on what's going on, like, oh, my therapist isn't available. My reaction is much greater than the actual situation warrants, if that makes sense. And then, okay, moving into the comments, somebody says, yes, I do this all the time. Once I leave therapy, I'll think about the conversations that I need to have next time over and over in my head. Sometimes to the point that I think I might have pure OCD. It could be, if you guys don't know, OCD is an anxiety-based disorder. And pure O is when our uh, obsessions and compulsions are all thought-based, meaning that we we have to think in a certain, we have these obsessions, meaning we focus in on this certain thing, meaning therapy in this example. And then we have to take action mentally, meaning think through the conversations that we're having and plan for the next ones as a way to soothe so that something bad doesn't happen. So that would be how that would play out. And if that's what you're doing, then yes, it could be part of OCD again, um, another anxiety disorder and part of my original hypothesis. It says, I do this with other people in situations in my life too, but therapy the most. That's interesting when it's not just therapy-based. To me, this sec- this comment, I would let your therapist know this is happening and tell them that you, you suspect OCD because you think that this is why it's happening. Because when things, when it's not just therapy, it's happening in other relationships, that tells us that it's not because we need more time in therapy, right? Okay. So it's just process of elimination. That's why it's good to be curious and see how it's affecting you. Okay. The next, oh, and it says, and half the time, I don't even end up having the conversations that I had in my head. If I do, they're much different. And I never imagine my therapist replying to what I'm saying, only my part of the conversation. Okay. So it's like a one-sided conversation. Lately, I've been yelling out loud, stop to myself if I'm not in public. But the next thing I know is happening again. I plan to bring this up with my therapist. Yes, yes, please do. Because I remember this used to happen to me all the time as a kid slash teenager when I was going through some pretty intense trauma that had stopped until recently. So it's your way to cope. It's a trauma response. The topics are usually described as flashbacks or traumatic events or something that I know I need to talk about in therapy, but I might be trying to avoid. Could this just be an intense anxiety or something else? I think it's something else. I think it's a part of your trauma response and the way that you're doing your best to cope is by, you know, trying to kind of control slash think out and plan out. It gives us this false sense of control for some reason when we try to plan out conversations and our end of things. It can make us feel soothed thinking that we're prepared to have it. Even like you said, even though they don't happen in the way that we had planned, it's not really about that. It's almost like, number one, we're distracting ourselves from the the other worry, right? The trauma and the, the PTSD we 
sustained and all the things that happened to us. We're not thinking about that. We're focused on this other obsession. And it uh, allows us to feel a little bit in control of the conversations that we have and how we have them. I hope that makes sense. Okay. So I believe it's more um, a trauma response. And then another comment says, when does analyzing, watching informational uh, videos about mental health and reflecting about past relationships unhealthy and a problem in itself? I watched a video of yours on emotional abuse two days ago and started writing down all the main symptoms with the subcategories. Then I thought back to when I was in an emotionally abusive friendship, if that's even a thing, that is a thing, or toxic friendship, and underlined all the symptoms that were present in this quote unquote friendship, which ruined almost two years of my school life. It turns out I underlined almost all the symptoms in four of the five categories. I can't believe I didn't see all these red flags of what seemed to have been a textbook emotionally abusive relationship. A lot of us don't because we, we aren't aware, right? We don't know what we don't know. And someone treating us poorly and doing all those things to us doesn't necessarily mean that we, like, it doesn't mean that we noticed it or realized it. A lot of times abuse doesn't just happen right away when we meet them. It can take them a while before they start acting out in abusive ways. Again, I know abuse and trauma always, you know, want to, it causes us to feel like the blame and the shame and the guilt ourselves. And I'm here to tell you it's not your fault. And you're not supposed to be able to notice right away. Now that we know, hopefully we can do better next time. That's actually the main action we can take, okay? Um, it says, can an emotional can emotional abuse happen even in a, gr- in a group with two others who are the same age as you? Or is this called bullying or toxic? It could be called all of those things. You could call it bullying, because it's it's technically still abuse, emotional abuse. I think people don't realize that. Like, I have a video if you want to know, uh, want to watch it. The five signs of emotional abuse. You can find it on YouTube and watch it. But bullying could be considered emotional abuse. Um, any kind of, I don't know, toxic friendships. It depending on how it played out and what happened could have been considered abuse, right? I think we think of emotional abuse only in one way, and I'm here to tell you that if people are shouting at you and putting you down and shaming and blaming you and you know maybe spreading rumors even right bullying can take the the shape of rumors and that can that's emotional abuse right do we feel upset emotionally because of it to the point where we have ptsd like symptoms yeah yeah well it's emotional abuse and obviously if you don't develop ptsd that that does not mean it's not emotional abuse i'm just giving that as an example and you could, you could call it toxic relationships too, but it's all, it's different words for the same thing. I also applied the list, the same list to my parents as well. Is doing that a good way to identify abusive relationships or over, or overanalyzing and overthinking? I think when we realize that we have a pattern of behavior, meaning if we think that we had this friendship that what was two years of our life and it was horrible and abusive and we realize now that it was an emotionally abusive friendship, it's only normal to take that information and look at our other friendships. For instance, I ended a friendship with a, uh, it was a friend of mine I had from since college. I'm trying to think of how long I knew her, probably since 2002. And then we stopped being friends. Oh God, maybe, I don't know, maybe in 2016, 2017, somewhere around there. So we were friends for a really long time, like 14 years. And after I realized just how toxic that relationship was for me, and ended it, I looked at all my friendships differently and tried to make sure that there, I wasn't doing that same thing, right? Because how did, how was I in that friendship for so long without realizing it? And 
come to find out, I didn't really have any other friendships that were like that. There was one that was a little bit, uh, but it worked its way out and we're not friends anymore. Anyway, nothing big happened. It was just like we were going in different directions. But I think that that's just normal to take what we've learned, look at our other relationships, make sure that those are healthy and happy for us so that we don't continue to make the same mistakes. I think that's good. As long as it's leaving time for us to like live our life too. I don't want any of us to spend like 99% of our time obsessing and analyzing our relationships. This is something we should just consider. Let's say if we're talking how often, let's say we figured out this friendship was toxic and ended it. And then for the next like, I don't know, week or two, we think about it and apply it to our other relationships and then move on healthfully. Cool. Okay. And then this person says, hi, in my case, I keep having conversations with my therapist like I'm in session with him and I'm able to tell him whatever I don't dare to say when I'm in front of his face. Interesting. I get so sucked into all of this that I almost feel like I'm in an actual therapy session. Do we think it's maladaptive daydreaming? Maybe. I also replay events that have happened in my head and I have conversations with those that are involved and have conversations with those people as if they were in front of me. I can truly be honest because I don't have to be, you know, quote unquote, socially acceptable for my behavior or answers, as well as I don't have to care how they would react. I know they're not physically there, however, so there's no hallucinations, just if anybody's wondering, that clears that up. However, I do this all the time when I'm alone. As well, I used to talk to my dog when he was alive and tell him everything and how people suck. <laughs> Is that normal? It's normal to talk to our pets and tell them everything. That's why they're so therapeutic and wonderful. Also, they get us up and out and give us something to love and take care of, which I think is really healthy, healthy and helpful. Um, However, spending all this time having conversations with your therapist and other people and saying it out loud as if you're in an actual therapy session, this sounds like it's getting to be a little bit too much. And I would wonder, I'm very curious about the OCD or anxiety disorder type of thing. So I would please, please, please let your therapist know there's nothing weird, nothing wrong with you. We're just trying to figure out why this is happening. Again, kind of going back to the the first component of this question when I was saying, you know, I wonder if we need more therapy time, but yours happens outside of just therapy sessions as well. So I don't think it's that. I'm suspicious about an anxiety disorder, meaning is it maybe social anxiety and so we want to play things out after the fact because we couldn't normally say those or is it ocd and we like to play things through all the time is are we obsessing about it if we if you weren't able to do what you're doing would, would our anxiety build right i'd have a lot of questions about this and so that we could figure out where it's coming from and then find a way to better manage it because while it's fine to have some conversations in your head and to think things through this shouldn't take up like all of our time or anytime we're alone, we're making time to have these conversations. That's when it becomes unhealthy. Okay. I hope that's really clear. I know it can get complicated and confusing and we don't know what's healthy or not, but hopefully that clears that up. Okay. Let's move on to question number three. This question reads, hi, Katie, what causes us to invalidate our traumas? Great question. I experienced multiple traumatic events growing up. I know it happened, but it seems like I'm always downplay downplaying these events. They were very serious in nature, but I pushed them away as just something that happened. Why do we invalidate or think of trauma as no big deal when it was? Thank you. Of course. So the reason we invalidate traumas is because we're unable, our brain is unable to process them. And what I mean by that is when something bad happens to us, when something hurtful takes place, it doesn't make sense, right? Logically, no other, no human should want to harm another human, right? If we just think about that, like 
sometimes I think we need to realize that we're, we're, we're all, I believe in the good in people and it doesn't make any sense because it shouldn't why one individual would want to harm another in any way. So when abuse happens, whatever form of abuse, right? Sexual, physical, emotional, any kind of bullying. When something like that happens, we think no one would want to do that. People wouldn't do that. So we downplay it. We're like, it must not have been that bad. They wouldn't, no one would have wanted that was, especially if it's a, a caretaker, meaning a parent or a family member, they would never want to do that. They're supposed to love me. They're my mom, dad, you know, grandma, aunt, whatever, brother. They're supposed to love me. They're my family. That doesn't make sense. They would never want to do that. I must be remembering it wrong. And that's where we go into kind of the shame spiral that comes along with trauma. It's be, it's born out of what I believe is our difficulty to understand why someone would do us harm, right? And I'm here to tell you that no one is supposed to believe that that could happen or that that would be something that someone would do to another human. We're not supposed to know that. That doesn't make sense. And it never will make sense to me because I still won't understand why there's such terrible people in the world. But because of that, we struggle to understand and to make sense of it because it doesn't make sense, right? And so because we don't often don't talk about it and often no one's coming to our aid and we don't have anybody we can really talk to about it, we make up our own story, meaning we try to make sense of this nonsensical situation. And so we take all the information and we try to piece it together. And the only thing that makes sense is that we must be overreacting because it must not have been that bad or I must have done something to cause it. That's the only reason someone would do this, guilt, right? Embarrassment. I can't believe I let that happen to me. And then welcome our third partner, shame. Something must be wrong with me for that to have happened. That doesn't even make any sense, but it happened to me, so I must be broken. Or this happened multiple times, something must have be wrong inside of me to cause that to happen again, right? And so those, you know, shame, embarrassment, and guilt spiral together. And in order for us to try to make, quote unquote, make sense of the trauma, we invalidate ourselves and we say all of those things. They tell us that, you know, I'm saying they like shame, guilt, and embarrassment tell us that, you know, we're mem remembering it wrong, or we possibly, and sorry, I don't want to detour too much into this, but it is also possible that whoever, if there was someone that harmed us, if our trauma was caused by someone else, we can, they could have told us that person who abused us could have told us at the time that like we caused, we made, you made me do this. Or if you'd just done that, I wouldn't have. Spoilers, they're just a bad person. There's nothing we could have done because there's no, again, going back to it, there's no reason for another human to harm someone else, another human, right? We shouldn't be doing this. Um, and so it's because of the shame, the guilt, the embarrassment that swirls into our mind when we have been through a trauma, we invalidate it and we try to downplay it as a way to try to make sense of a nonsensical thing. And this can apply to other traumas outside of another human actually harming us. This can apply to like being in a horrific car crash or witnessing, you know, like a, I don't know, maybe there's a gas leak somewhere and you saw a building blow up and you were almost killed. Like even those situations, we can still feel, we can still go through this because we're like, oh, it must not have been that I'm over, I'm overreacting. You know, I'm fine. We can have survivor's guilt, right? There can still be guilt, shame, and embarrassment. It doesn't only apply when we are harmed by another individual, but we invalidate to try to make sense of it and to try to, honestly, it's kind of part of the repression too. We like stuff it down so we can move forward. So it's part of our survival mechanism and our way to, to make sense of it. I hope that what I'm saying makes sense.
So this person says, um, I kind of have a follow-up question. Why do others invalidate people's trauma? For example, what if a kid opened up to a parent about a relative abusing them and the parent didn't believe them? Or the parent could say that the kid misunderstood. Do people do this out of fear or is it true disbelief? Great question. I honestly believe that parents do this out of complete and utter ignorance, meaning they like I said, we'd never like to think that someone could harm someone else, right? And instead of listening to their child and taking in the information and asking questions, they judge because they can't imagine that someone would hurt their child. And they also, if it's a member of the family, they can't imagine that it's their husband or their other child or their mother, father, uncle, sister, brother, whatever, right? They can't imagine. And so I believe that it's that disbelief that causes that reaction, unless... I'm putting this out there, unless they are completely and utterly neglectful and abusive to you themselves. Meaning if they're, the parent that you're talking about isn't there for you at all, never uh, supports you when you're upset, never emotionally is there, or even physically maybe. Maybe they don't have enough food in the fridge, they don't make sure that you get to school on time, or that you're doing your homework, or that you have proper clothes to wear, clean clothes, you know, things like that. If they don't take care of you that way either, then they're part of the abuse cycle and they essentially aren't capable of being a good parent and listening to their child. So actually it has nothing to do with you. Again, has nothing to do with you. Um, they're just invalidating the trauma because if they didn't, they would have to acknowledge their, the abuse that they are doing as well. And oftentimes parents like that are so, you know, um, I don't even know what the word is. It's not really distracted, but I guess distracted by their own wants and needs, whether that's like, you know, drugs and alcohol or just complete incompetence when it comes to being a parent and they're such a narcissist, they only think about themselves and their needs, whatever the reason behind that, if they acknowledge that someone else has harmed you, they'd have to acknowledge that they're doing it too. And so I think that that's why parents do it or they just can't even believe that that would happen. And it's so hard for them to even conceptually deal that they try to shrug it off. And it's the worst thing a parent can do. But I do believe that there are some parents out there who actually don't mean harm and don't know and just like can't imagine that that would happen and think that you must have made it up from something you saw on TV or something like that because the thought that someone would harm their child is just too much for them to process. And in a way, it's like they're having their own trauma response. And I'm not saying that to condone the behavior or make the behavior okay. I'm saying that just to as a way to explain why. Again, doesn't make it okay. And it doesn't mean it's, it do, isn't painful and hurtful and traumatizing in and of itself, but it just helps us maybe better understand why. Now, someone else said, there was no yelling, shaming, criticizing, or insulting involved. Can it even be emotional abuse if these components are missing and it's more of an emotionally manipulative or completely oversharing kind of situation? That's still emotional abuse, just a different form. So yes, it can still be emotional abuse because the manipulation and the oversharing means that there are no boundaries and you become the parentified child because now you're an equal with your parent because they're telling you things about their life that a child shouldn't know. And that's abusive in and of itself because you don't get the opportunity to just be a child, okay? My mother, and so to follow up with this question, just to finish it, it says, my mother was never really mean to me. She didn't control my life or belittle me, yet she managed to ruin our relationship and it always stresses me out emotionally and triggers me because it's it's inappropriate. And my father kind of endorsed the parentification, see, parentification aspect because he was overprotective of my depressed mother. Yeah, and I mean, 
unfortunately due to your mother's depression and possibly her um her not getting the right help it created this really unhealthy and toxic family environment where your father you know let your mom do anything because thinking that that would help the depression spoilers it doesn't it only like in it enables it and doesn't you know push her to get more support and help so that she can get better um and then you're parentified because you know she wants to lean on you which is completely inappropriate and abusive and so yes that is all that is emotional abuse i know it maybe doesn't feel like it because you're like that's the com- that's actually what's the confusing part about emotional abuse is that a lot of people are like well they didn't hit me or sexually abuse me you know they just like talk shit a lot and and then like weren't there and then like weren't the mom for me like they'd come to me and tell me about things that i shouldn't know about that's still abuse it's just not as loud or as outward you know we might not have bruises because it wasn't physical we might not have been sexually abused but we, it was still an emotionally abusive situation. That's why you're so triggered. That's why it's so overwhelming. And emotional abuse isn't just shouting, it's manipulation. It's, um, it can be coercion to get you to do certain things. It can be oversharing. It can be like emotional neglect, meaning that they're just not there, right? So the removal of any emotional support from your mother, which if she is as depressed as this, you make the sound, I would argue that she wasn't there for you. you had to be parentified you had to be there for yourself and so that's emotional neglect and yet again emotional abuse okay and i'm so sorry you guys have to go through this as i read these questions i've realized recently it was like last week's podcast where i was like man katie you're just reading through these and like you need to like acknowledge that this fucking sucks so i want you to know i hear you and i'm sorry that this is happening and i hate i hate like like i said in the last question it's so hard for me to even try to comprehend why one human would ever want to hurt another human. I just, I can't make sense of it because there's no sense to be made of it, right? So I'm sorry that any of you have had to go through this, especially at the hands of your parents. It's like, people, do better. We, I know you know better, do better. Okay, question number four. It reads, in my last therapy session, I told my therapist about some trauma that I dealt with as a kid. After I told my therapist about it, she asked me some questions and I couldn't say anything other than I don't know. So common. I just sat in silence. Is it normal to not be able to say anything? And if your client did this, would it make you frustrated? No, I would not be frustrated. And I 100% believe that your therapist is not frustrated. Excuse me, I had to burp. Um, this is very common. A lot of times we get overwhelmed with sharing a traumatic story. Almost always my patients get overwhelmed with sharing. I've only had one patient and I'm kind of grinning just because it was so, it was, it was just him. It was just his personality, but he had worked through this one trauma, not some other traumas come to find out, but this one trauma. So many times when he first came into my office, he was like, okay, so I guess I'm going to have to tell you about the sexual abuse. So I had this happen. He just went through it like blah, 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 blah. But usually, and that was part of his defense mechanism by the way was just like blurting out really quick because then when you slow down and talk about it he had a real tough time but we won't get into that i'm sharing that because usually it's really hard to talk about and even in that case when we slowed it down and um tried to i tried to you know ask questions about how he felt about it and does it still bother him and you know come to find out it actually did but it was easier for him just to dump it but most people don't aren't able to dump it we can open up by saying something happened, but then that's really it. And we can really struggle 
when a therapist is doing their job and shows up for us and asks you know, ask questions about it so that they can better understand and know how to help and better get into what really took place. Once they've asked, you know, they're doing their job and it's okay to not know. It's okay to say, I don't know. And it's okay at next session at the beginning to say, you know, that was so overwhelming for me last time. I just shut down. I didn't know how to answer your questions. Is there another way we can go about this? Because some of the ways that I would go about this, I'd I, if if you're open to it, because not everybody's a journaler, but I would encourage you to journal. I know everybody just cringed because they're like, God damn it, Katie, you in that journal. But it really helps. And I would have you start writing about it if you're able. Or I even had a patient who used to record YouTube videos and leave them on Unlisted and send me the links and that was her journaling. So that works too. So anyway, so there's those things. Um, what, or maybe if we can email our therapist in between sessions, knowing that they won't reply, but it's more of like a repository and a place for us to get it out. Again, it's kind of like journaling, but you know it's going to someone. Try things out and ask if they have any ideas as well, because it's okay to say, I don't know, because we frankly don't. We don't know how to talk about it yet. We don't have language. Remember earlier I was talking about how healing therapy can be because it gives us language and words to put to what we're going through. That you're, you're in it. You're gonna do it. It's okay. And again, no, it would not make me frustrated. This happens almost every time. And it's just, I even, even my patients who haven't gone through a trauma will sometimes try to talk to me about something and then they'll be like, I don't even know how to explain it. I don't have the words. I don't know. I don't know. That's okay. We're going to work together. I'm going to try to ask different questions in a different way to get you to open up a little more or to help give language to things. I might have you do some feelings charts or I might ask questions about something else or, you know, we'll be creative, we'll get in. That's the therapist's job is to be creative and to think of different ways to ask questions and to get the information from you so that you are able to talk about it more than you thought you could and not be re-traumatized and all that good stuff. So no, I wouldn't be frustrated. It's very it's very common. And let's see about the journaling, emailing, uh, other ways to talk about it and get it out. Okay. Let's move on to question number five. And this question says, hi, Katie, do you have any tips for figuring out a healthy balance between helping others and excessive people pleasing? Great question. I feel like people pleasing is core to my personality and is often a way that I'm able to build relationships with others. Ooh, ooh. I also love helping people. And it's something that typically makes me happy. Although sometimes it can be inconvenient or time consuming. Mm-hmm. Still, people in my life have commented that my focus on pleasing others seems excessive. If they're noticing it, it's a problem, especially since I never ask for help for myself when I'm struggling. Yep. I know my issues with people pleasing are likely to be tied to low self-esteem, experience with childhood sexual abuse, and emotionally unavailable parents. Oh, 100%. But I worry that if I spend less time helping others, I'll have less to offer as a friend. Oh, look at that lack of self-esteem. If I'm not helping, I'm not worth it. Hmm. Is that really true? Is that what we believe? If we're not helping, we're not worthwhile. What about you just being you? I think that's enough. Okay. It says, do you have any advice for me and others who struggle with this? Thanks so much for all that you do. So let's dig into this. We have one comment after this, a question that was added on. Um, I would encourage you to spend some time considering ways that you can take care of yourself because it's fine to do things for others but again we cannot pour from an empty pitcher and if those around you are noticing and saying that it's excessive it's excessive because it takes a lot for other people in our life to notice that that's what we do so 
I ooh, tell your therapist, this honestly has to be worked on in therapy because and I had to do this work my own. Um, it wasn't as intensive that my family and people noticed. It wasn't that excessive, but it still was bothersome because I would do things to please others before doing things to please myself, especially when I was like a teenager and in my early 20s. And all of my therapy work at that time was to stop this behavior. And I'm telling you to get into therapy and talk about it there because that was It's really hard, but it's totally possible. As what I've always said, as a recovering people pleaser, I'm here to tell you that it it can get better. And the truth about this is that the way to kind of stop this is to start doing small periods of time where you do things only because you want to and you're not available. And I know you just cringed, but it started for me. My therapist would have me leave my cell phone. This was, cell phones were relatively new back then. I think I was like a senior in high school or junior in high school. And I had like a little Nokia phone. Leave my phone at home or for safety, which really, I mean, somebody else would have a phone. I think we'd be okay. But for safety, if I was going too far away, not just running a little errand, to turn my phone off and not turn it back on when I'm out only for emergencies, right? And not be available and do things only that you want to do. So that means like for me, once I took a day to myself where I just went walking around town and popped into little shops that I wanted to do. And then I went out for lunch and got myself like a fancy hot chocolate. And then I went down to the beach and I watched the sunset. Like I just had a lovely day. And the funny thing was that was a whole day, but that had to build up. It started with like 10... 30 minutes at a time. And I'm not going to lie. The first few times I was supposed to be unavailable. I did turn my phone back on and check it and then turn it right back off. And I had to talk about that in therapy, but I'm, I'm giving you all this information because it's not a turn it on or turn it off type of thing. It's more about digging into why we're doing it and why we think that if we, you know, people please like, what are we getting out of it? Cause usually it's a false sense of control or it's connection and we don't really believe that we are worthwhile, which I, I think that might be where yours is coming from, is we actually really need true connection because our parents were super unemotional, emotionally unavailable. Um, and so once we figure out the why behind it, then we can find ways to give that to ourselves in healthier ways. Meaning, instead of us people pleasing, when really what we just need is connection, maybe we just call that one friend and talk about what we want to talk about first. I know. Talk about yourself first. Then ask them how they're doing because it's relationships are give and take, but we talk about us first and we catch up that way. What if we did that? Or what if it's, we join group therapy because that's super helpful. We get that connection and understanding without having to bring anything to the table because the therapists are there to guide it and to offer advice. You don't have to, you actually aren't supposed to offer any insight, no crosstalk, right? You just share what you have to share people might say, yeah, yeah, me too. And that's it. And then we move on and someone else shares and therapists do the work that might be really helpful in healing. I think that actually might be a great place to start. That was helpful for me. I did a grief group with my, when my dad passed away and that was really, really helpful in healing and a great way for me to ensure that I was taking care of me and not other people, but therapy will be really helpful. And little by little, you can learn to be, to act differently. And there was a comment on this that said, I can totally relate. My therapist comments that I think about 
care for and do for others more than I care for myself. I know it's hard, you guys, you're not alone. Um, I didn't think of that as being a problem for me, of course not, except for when people have asked me what I'm doing to take care of myself, right? We cannot pour from the empty pitcher as, you know, that's kind of like the analogy that I use, we have to fill up our own pitcher before we, you know, give it to others. So I honestly don't even know how to answer that question, how they're taking care of themselves. Um, most likely because I'm not doing anything in particular for myself to the point where I'm really unsure of what my needs are. I'm to the point where I really hate being asked that question because it makes me feel like there's something wrong with me for not knowing. How do I deal with that? There's not anything wrong with you. It's really, they're asking that because we have to do for ourselves in order to keep doing for others. Otherwise, we're like, we're not giving them our full support or our full energy, right? Because we don't have it. And that can also lead to a ton of health complications, not just mental health issues like depression, anxiety, uh, all sorts of things like that. But we can also have health issues. Like I have patients who do this, who don't sleep very well, and then, you know, start having headaches and body aches and just weird digestive issues. We can have a lot of side effects coming from us not taking care of ourselves, right? It, it's not just, and I don't even mean to say just like to downplay it, but I'm saying it's not just that we're not taking care of ourselves because we're putting other people first. It's like we're, it's, it's detrimental, right? And so there's nothing wrong with you for not knowing. The best place to start is to give yourself a day off from others. Like I was just telling the person above, but we can start with like 30 minutes of being unavailable and not, you know, we can't do anything to no helping other people, no, no calling, no doing anything to support or to find out information or to get anything done. We're just only going to do for ourselves. Give yourself like 30 minutes. Then the next week, I want you to try an hour building up to giving yourself an entire day. The, the, the problem with a constant caregiver, that's what I would call us over people pleasers. Being a constant caregiver is exhausting and we need to have breath in for our breath out, the caregiving of others. And that breath in is going to be something that might be really hard for us to, to figure out but it's okay if we just wander around or do nothing the thing is i'd assume those of us who have been people pleasing or caregiving for a long time if we had a day to do nothing or do whatever we wanted we would want to do nothing because we're so exhausted i would bet probably neither of you sleep that well and we struggle to feel connected and we struggle to even know how we're we're feeling at all or what's even happening you know we can we're so disconnected that i think silence and just being by ourselves watching tv or something or taking a bath would be the best like not doing because the the struggle for those of us who care given people please too much is that we even when we're doing something quote unquote for ourselves, we're actually kind of doing it for someone else. And we just don't want to admit it because it could be like, oh, I'm just going to go into town. And, and then we're like, oh, pop by a shop. Oh, so-and-so would really like this card. I'm going to pick that up. That makes me feel good. We got to find another way to make you feel good that doesn't involve doing something for someone else. I know. I know it's hard to hear. So maybe just do nothing for an like half hour, hour. And Maybe it's also, you know how we do like the feelings charts? Maybe we make a list of needs. And if we can't think of them for ourselves, what do we think the other people that we're taking care of or people pleasing for, what do we think they need? What is it we give people a lot of? Write those things down because then write some of the ways. So once we have those list of, of needs, what are the, some of the ways, what are some of, wow, that was like, I just said that totally wrong. But what are some of the ways that we meet those needs or try to meet those needs for others? Let's write those down. And are there any of those that we can do for ourselves? 
Yes, it's going to be uncomfortable. Yes, it's going to be difficult. And yes, I know that sounds really tedious, but that's the best place to start. There's nothing wrong with you for not knowing. We just have to be curious. We got to dig in and keep me posted. Okay. Let's move on to question number six. It says, hi, Katie, what are your thoughts on a therapist pushing to cut back sessions? Because her words, other people need therapy too. Oof. A previous therapist, punch him in the throat. A previous therapist told me, I think we should try every other week now. And when I asked her why, she said that she was seeing more clients now and others needed an opportunity for therapy too. I was blown away. I'd never heard of a therapist reducing sessions solely to take more client, take on more clients. Me neither. Is it really my or any current client's responsibility? No. To make sure that there's enough opportunity for new people to have therapy? This seems un- an unfair burden to put on a client. I felt guilty for not giving up therapy sessions in order to make room for someone else. They shouldn't put that on you. That's so unethical. But I could not help that I was not stable enough to give up sessions. Exactly. For context, I was not in a stable place emotionally and I was just beginning to talk about childhood trauma and was still having flashbacks and dissociating often, along with hearing voices and feeling like someone was someone else was taking over my life sometimes. I have since discontinued therapy with her and she referred me good I'm glad you discontinued. And she referred me to a day program where I have multiple groups in a week in addition to therapy. I am now diagnosed with complex PTSD and DID or dissociative identity disorder, if you don't know, in addition to having bipolar two, and I guess still BPD, but I'm not sure. Probably not. I would, you, you can have BPD and complex PTSD, but I would assume it's complex PTSD. I'm finally starting to feel like I'm making some forward progress now that I'm getting into treatment for the dissociative disorder. And I'm glad I didn't just give up on therapy when I felt like I wasn't getting enough help and that I didn't just accept less than what I needed. Yeah, than what I knew I needed. But I wonder how many other people are talked into reducing therapy when they're just not ready just to make room for other clients. Thanks so much for all the videos you make. They always help me think more deeply and remember things that I'm learning in treatment. I'm so glad. So this is a great, question slash comment and someone commented on this and said that in at clinics and hospitals sometimes therapists are forced to see more patients and so they have to open up hours i've never worked in a clinic like that but i understand i do know especially in like canada and the uk a lot of you have told me that you're limited on your number of sessions and even though they can get extensions they might you know make you go only every other week or once a month to to spread out the sessions and so they can fit in more because they're required usually through their job to see a certain amount of patients over the year and so i'd assume that could be some kind of quota and thing like that but i've personally never seen it i uh think this therapist and i knew from the person who asked this question they followed up in the comments and said that that was not the case they were working you know on their own in a private practice i think that what she did is very very unethical and there's no reason to do that just like you said, it is not your responsibility to make sure that there's more hours for patient, other people you don't know to get therapy because you need it. And that's why you're there. And we all need to receive the help at the level with which we require. And there's no judgment or we shouldn't have to make space. It's that's bullshit. It's complete bullshit. And it really, really pisses me off. And I'd like to have a conversation with this therapist because that doesn't make any sense and if they just thought that you needed a higher level of care or didn't need as much treatment i don't know then they should have talked to you about that and then you would have said no i still feel like i'm struggling in which case as a therapist you would say okay good i just want to check in and you make time for them it's just bullshit i there's no reason and you I, I, the person who asked the question was correct that's not your responsibility and that's bullshit and it's unethical and i wouldn't be surprised if you couldn't like 
not file a claim against them, but like it is, it is ethically debatable. I don't think that's, that's correct at all, but I guess they didn't completely stop therapy for you. They just weren't letting you come in as often. It sounds like yeah, reducing sessions. It's just not okay. It's just not okay. You can't do that. And you don't just stop a treatment like that. You kind of titrate down, you talk to a patient about why you're doing it. And usually like 90% of the time they're on board. I have had patients who don't want to get into a higher level of care and they will do that. But that's about it. Okay. There's a comment on this and it says it's also possible for a therapist. Oh, it is it also possible for a therapist to just end treatment without telling you every session I go into, I'm so nervous. She's going to just say that it's our last session. They can't do that. Don't worry. And it keeps me from wanting to share things for reference. She diagnosed me with BPD and she said I should see a therapist who specializes in DBT. You should. However, she's willing to keep seeing me in the meantime to help me with the relational aspect of therapy since she's the first therapist I've ever trusted. Thank you. Yeah, great question. No, a therapist cannot just end treatment without telling you. The way that therapy ends is usually in a titration format or a referral format. Meaning if you're like graduating the program of seeing a therapist and you're like, I don't think I need them anymore. And they're like, I don't think so either. Then you might come for a couple of weeks up to a month, maybe two months if you're titrating down, just depends on your need. I usually, when I think I'm going to take a break, just like tell them in that session and usually don't come back or I come in for like one more and then I'm done. But it just depends on the patient but you talk about it, you make the decision together, and then you take action to do that. They cannot just quit. That's called patient abandonment, and it's actually extremely unethical and potentially something that they could like lose their license over. You can file complaints against them. I've had uh, even, uh, I've had viewers tell me they've done it. I've had patients tell me they've uh, filed a complaint in the past because of patient abandonment. And I've even had, unfortunately, one of my colleagues have to like, fight back against the potential quote-unquote patient abandonment she was found not guilty of it i knew she wasn't either i had been um not assisting her with that but you know talking her through and being a support as a friend um because you guys know part of that big group of therapists where we used to get together every month and talk about cases and stuff it was one of the people in there and it was it was really rough but Either way, it's not okay. That's not what we do. You can't just cancel. You titrate down, you talk about it, you process, and you, or you're referred out to see someone else. And once you're with that other person, you do what you want as long, you know, again, like maybe a couple sessions, maybe like a month of sessions, and then you're finished with one and moved on to the next. You see what I mean? There's no just quick cancel. So, so don't worry. And also, you can always ask your therapist about it. It's okay to ask and say, hey, I'm worried about this. That's completely fine. Now, the other comment on this said, on a side note, what can you do when you felt like you're not resolving your issues in therapy or just as you're getting into the problems, time is up and you feel like you need more time in therapy? So I pushed past the anxiety and asked my therapist in a text if I could either have more time in session or additional sessions. My therapist replied that she didn't have any more space available for me. That's possible. She didn't address the subject at all Ooh, during our following session. And needless to say, I was too triggered and anxious to bring up the subject again with her. However, that has not changed our sessions at all. I'm left still feeling as though I'm spinning my wheels and wasting my time in, in therapy and fighting the resistant, to resist the urge of quitting entirely. Any insight you would give me can be greatly, will be greatly appreciated. Yeah, my, my knee-jerk reaction when I first read this comment was, well, you need more, more sessions or more time. And then you did the thing, you advocated and you spoke up. I'm so proud of you. Yay. But then your therapist was a dickwad. 
I understand not having more time. I want to put that out there. I've had this happen to me over the years, especially as I went from three days a week in my office because I was working at a hospital part-time too. I don't know if you guys remember this, but I used to be in my office three days a week. Then I went to two days a week because I was doing YouTube more. And I had patients, you know, graduate from the program. I just didn't fill their slots. And then there was a time when I was, there was two days a week where I was only doing two half days. And I had a patient at that time want to do more sessions. And I frankly did not have the time in my schedule, but I was able to have her be my last session of that day and add on there. I made that concession, but until I could move her to that slot, which took I want to say it was like a month before that other patient I knew they were going to be leaving because we were like titrating down, but it took a while. And at the time I told her I just don't have any additional time. And I recommended some groups and some other support and things like that. But that does happen. I just want you guys to know that, you know, we only have so many hours in the day and a lot of us are operating at a full, full capacity because it's expensive to rent office space. And if you're, if people are in person, um, I'm sure now, nowadays, but I don't know what your therapist is doing because now I feel like more therapists are working more and more, which there's positives and negatives that we got to take care of ourselves too. But all I want to say is that we can be without space. However, it's not okay to then not address it. I think that's the, the problem. You shouldn't have to bring it up again. And I might encourage you because you're needing more care than they're able to give is to potentially consider finding another therapist that has time in their schedule and is clearly communicative because that just seems very i don't know about you but that to me that would feel very invalidating and like you were kind of brushed off now i will also throw in the caveat that therapists are people too and maybe they're just overworked and they forgot because hey we're in a pandemic and the world's on fire and shit's happening it's crazy if you're able you can bring it up again but you've done i'm just so proud of you for already bringing it up and talking about it and to not address it, I would just say, you know, felt really hurtful and talk about that. If you can, please do, please try. But we really need to find you someone who has the time in their schedule for the support that you need. And the final comment on this question said also, what are other reasons a therapist would start scheduling a client with complex PTSD and anxiety for every other week when in the past it has been a session every week? My therapist started doing this and I haven't asked him why yet, but I probably will. Yes, ask them why. I never change the schedules of people's sessions without talking to them. I would never just be like, well, see you in two weeks. And they're like, what? I usually see you on Tuesdays and Thursdays or whatever. I would never do that. Um, no, I don't understand that at all. Especially if you see a pattern to it. It'd be one thing if you like skip a week and the therapist's like, oh, I'm going to be out next week. But they would, again, they would tell you. There's no reason to not tell. I would bring it up and talk to them. I find that very bizarre. Okay. Question number seven says, how can you tell if you have an attachment to your therapist, transference, or just a healthy bond? And is it ever appropriate to ask your therapist for a hug or to sit next or for them to sit next to you, assuming COVID ends eventually and is safe? Thanks. This is a great question. So first I just wanna answer, yes, it's appropriate to ask your therapist for a hug. Some therapists will and some won't, and they'll explain to you either way. I'm fine with it. I am very... I will always, and people probably hate this, my patients, if they're listening, you're probably like, yes, I hated this. I always ask them about it. I don't just say, yeah, it's okay to get a hug. Like if a patient's ending sessions with me and like moving on to something else, of course, a hug is appropriate and totally fine. And I'm not going to dig into it because it's like, we, we did, we worked on things together. We were together in, you know, in the foxhole. And so there's a little bit of bonding there. 
But if a patient continues to ask for hugs, more than just one, like after a really tough session, that's fine. But if they keep asking about it, I want to talk about it because I'm very curious about why they feel that urge all the time. And that's just the therapist in me. It, it's not meant to shame or to judge. It's more like, hey, what's going on? Like, I'm curious. And that would be me more being curious about the attachment of it and what they think our relationship is like. And if they got any physical affection from their family and what that was like, I just want to know more about it. Because if there's that strong of an urge, I'm my homework then for them would to be to find healthy and safe or at least neutral touch from other loving people in their life. You know, just throwing it out there. Okay. And to sit next to you, I do that all the time, especially for my patients who struggle with dissociation. If they ask me to, or I'll ask if it's okay and they say yes, then I can like touch on, I'll ask where it's okay to touch like on the shoulder or the knee or something that can help keep them present or help them feel kind of soothed or safe enough to talk about something difficult. So the way to tell if you have an attachment to your therapist that's unhealthy is if we want to call and talk to them all the time in between session and we want to know everything about them and we just feel almost not obsessed about them, but like so focused on wanting more time and want to be with them all the time. That's an, that's a red flag of an unhealthy attachment. Wanting to be in therapy and to be able to have more time to talk about things is okay, but it shouldn't be something that's on our mind like every day, all day, okay? When it comes to transference, if we find ourselves treating our therapist in a way that doesn't really make sense. Meaning, am I treating my therapist the same way? Do we see a pattern or connection? Am I treating my therapist the same way I do my dad or my mom or my brother or my grandma or this person that I have a difficult relationship with? Am I treating my therapist like that? If that's what's happening, then that's transference. That's really what transference is. When we're transferring onto our therapist, the a relationship that we have with someone else and it's it's kind of an interesting psychological phenomenon because we do it as a way to like work through stuff or try to figure out how to make it better and so that's kind of cool but it's something that we can use in therapy to better heal and understand our relationship patterns i hope that makes sense i guess that's it i answered everything okay but yes you can ask them to sit next to you and for a hug okay moving on to our final question we have one more that's like a little short one about my new puppy but Final question number eight says, hey, Katie, if you could only afford medication or therapy, which one would you pick? I've been seeing a therapist for social anxiety and depression for about eight months now, and I haven't been getting any better. I'll be going back to university in a different province this September and don't have any more work benefits to help pay for it. I'm not currently taking any medication, but I'm considering it as an option as therapy is expensive and hasn't helped yet. Because you've tried therapy for eight months now and you're not getting any better, I... I think medication is the way I would go for now. I think it's okay to kind of toggle off and on to try these things because you've given it eight months. That's a good trial run. And I wonder if you're just drowning in the symptoms. If we feel connected to our therapist, like they're they're doing their job and they've given us homework, but we're just never able, like we are never able to try the homework or we just can't, it just feels impossible because our symptoms are so strong. That's what I call drowning in the symptoms. And I would... I would argue that medication would be our next thing to do. And once the medication is working and on board, hopefully we can get some coverage. You said province, so I'm hoping you're in Canada and they have they have socialized medicine and medication should be covered. I know therapy there is, it's like in the UK, it's just a shit show. Also Australia sometimes is a shit show too, where you have to pay privately, it's super expensive and there's no coverage at all, or you only get like five sessions or something, which is so ridiculous. Um, I know some are six or eight, but I'm just 
I just get frustrated with the systems of care that we have in our world. But I would try medication. Medication would be able to, I call it like a life raft to get our head above water so we're not drowning in those symptoms anymore, especially since you're going back to university. I want you to feel not so anxious and depressed. We need to be able to function, right? We we need to be able to to do our schoolwork. And I would encourage you if you have, before you end therapy, maybe spend one session or time at home so we don't have to pay for it, writing down some of the homework they gave you or asking them for workbooks they recommend. Because what I would love for you to do is to get onto the medication. And once hopefully we find one that works and we get our head above water, then I want you to try some of the tools and techniques that they offered when we weren't able to do them. Nobody says we, you know, we can't do the homework later when we're not in therapy, we can still try to work on things. Or if we have a workbook for, you know, social anxiety or depression, we can work our way through it. I think that all of that would be super, super beneficial and really helpful. And I think that hopefully that can kind of pull you out and get you to a place where you're feeling better. And I'm so sorry you have to choose one or the other, but right now I think medication is the best. That's just from my point of view. Make sure you see a psychiatrist who properly assesses you. Write down your symptoms and bring them in. The things that you're struggling with, say social anxiety, depression, tell them what's going on. Ask any questions about medication. You can ask about sleep and weight gain. And if there's any side effects you need to look out for, ask about all that stuff so that you're aware and fully informed when you start taking a medication. And then also remember, unfortunately, medication can take a few weeks to kick in. So be patient and hang in there with us. It will get better. Um, yeah. And then just keep us posted. Okay. Okay. And the last question says, Hey, Katie, do you have a new family member? We do. Can you please, can we please hear all about Roxy? Have a great week. Yes. So we have a new member of our family, Roxy. She is a little puppy. She's three and a half months old. She was born on May 7th. She survived Parvo. Her whole litter had Parvo and her and I think one or two other puppies are the only ones that survived, unfortunately. So she's a trooper. And we got her from a rescue in Austin called Austin Pets Alive. I highly recommend if you're in the area to check them out or make a donation if you can. They do wonderful work. And anyways, we got her on Saturday last week. And she's she's such a good girl. She's the sweetest. She's definitely a puppy. So we have to watch on watch her and make sure, you know, she's okay. She's kind of like a, they said she's a bull terrier mix, but she looks kind of like a pit bully to me, but a little smaller maybe. I don't know. She's adorable. And she actually just walked in. Do you guys want to see her? Do you see her? Oh, oh you've got the cord on your nose, little girl. And she's wet. And she's wet. She got in front of the shower or the shower, the sprinklers outside. And Sean likes to play with her with the hose because she it's hot out. So that's my baby girl. And I love her very much. And yeah, I she's just the best. So I understand now why people, you know, I mean, I had dogs growing up, but it's different to have your own. And they're a lot of work, but they're totally worth it. And follow me on Instagram for more about Roxy because I'll post about her more. Okay. I love you all. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for sending in your questions. If you're new here and you're like, where did I send in those questions? Over on my YouTube channel for my podcasts. So the podcast channel is called Opinions That Don't Matter. You go into the community tab on Sunday mornings. I ask you for your questions. I pick a bunch of the ones with the most thumbs ups and then some randoms. And yeah, have a wonderful rest of your week. I love you all and I'll see you next time. Bye. a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask 
Okay.